morning. It's exciting to be here for my very second time to actually preach from the pulpit here at Bethany Church. I'm a little lightheaded, which I'm going to chalk up to singing with a mask on instead of some sort of weird nervousness. That's just us, so I'm not really nervous about it, but I'm excited to be here. Um, uh, what, yeah, Doug a minute ago said, what a uh, wonderfully peculiar season we're in. It's been a long, hard, usually you say a big and long, hard winter, but it's been uh, a long, hard spring and summer, I think, for a lot of us. Um, for myself and my family in a lot of ways, and uh, just over two months ago, I had sur- spinal surgery, which was an interesting adventure that I'm recovering from quite well, I'm happy to say, and uh, uh, also... About two weeks after, actually two weeks to the day after that, my father passed away after uh, a pretty rough battle with cancer. Uh, luckily, he kn- knew the Lord and is no longer sick. And, uh, but I just want to thank Doug and the other guys on the oversight team, which I've been a, a part of for a little while now, for their friendship through that time. So probably shouldn't have mentioned all that because I'm going to start crying here, hanging out with Dave Wilcock at times. <laughs> but... Uh, Pray with me as we jump into our next um, installation here into just discussing uh, the parables of Jesus. Heavenly Father, uh, like we sang in these songs earlier, you are worthy of our all, and you're worthy of your inheritance. And Lord, I pray through uh, these next few minutes as we look at uh, the words of our Lord that you would quicken our ears to hear what you have to say, and that you would stir in our spirits in any convicting ways that you would see fit, um, and that you would speak through me as I try to get out of the way for for you to move through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to look today at the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark chapter 12. Um, This this parable is also uh, seen in uh, Luke chapter 20 also in Matthew chapter 21 and 22. And so I'm really just going to jump into this and read straight from Mark 12, and I'm going to let you in that I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and go beyond the actual parable piece from the Scripture and move into uh, the next episode um, that you're quite familiar with, I'm sure, uh, that comes in Mark's text directly after this parable. So if you have your Bibles open to Mark 12, um, I think it'll be up here on the screen. And, And hear the word of the Lord. This is from the ESV. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head And treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So I think we're pretty familiar with both that parable of the wicked tenants and also, of course, that, that episode here, paying taxes to Caesar and the coin. I'm going to come back to that episode with the coin in just a little bit. But first, a little bit of context in the Gospel of Mark here. Again, this, this parable is found in, in all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke as well. But as Mark puts it, in, if we go back to Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Not at all in the way that those Jews with their messianic expectations would really have thought. On a, on a huge white war horse, right? No, on a donkey's colt that may or may not have actually been stolen. <laughs> uh, borrowed, I guess. It's his, right? Um, not, with, not, not on the heels of a great triumph military battle like, like Caesar coming in in a, in a, in a chariot. Yet still at the same time, with, the, with, with followers laying branches before him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That Hosanna, that's a victory cry. But this was a confusing scene. So here comes Jesus. He makes his triumphal entry <laughs> where there was so much expectation. He's going to now set up his kingdom. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to go overthrow these pesky Romans. But he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't walk through the gates and turn right and go over to the Roman uh, headquarters, but he goes to the temple, takes a look around. Then he leaves town. <laughs> he goes back out, spends the night. Next morning, curses a fig tree in really, which we won't talk about now, but that's quite a, a wonderful prophetic image of what's going on here, uh, this tree that's not producing fruit. <laughs> and he comes back into the city, back into the temple, where then his authority is being challenged by these religious leaders. Whose authority do you speak by? And he, t- he kind of plays with them, says, well, if you can't figure that out, I'm not going to bother telling you, right? And that leads us here then to our text here in chapter 12. And what I want to point out uh, really has to do, what, well, let me, let me stop and say this. He gives this parable of the tenants, which is actually um, he, he, in reference to Isaiah chapter 5. Um, Jesus is speaking to these leaders in a parable. He's recalling Isaiah 5 where, these, where the prophet in the Old Testament in reference to a very unfaithful Israel uh, sings, it says in, in Isaiah 5, uh, um, of a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song, a love song concerning a vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, 
but it yielded only wild grapes. And it goes on there in Isaiah. A picture in Isaiah showing the coming destruction of Israel, the vineyard. So Jesus is picking up on that imagery here. Would have been very familiar to these religious leaders. They knew their prophets. So what do I want to point out in our parable here? It really has to do with verse 7 and, and the, 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 the part in verse 7 where these wicked tenants who've been entrusted with the vineyard, least it says, <laughs> where, where they're, they're, you, you see a, a progression in their, in their dis, disrespect and disdain and their rejection for the, the servants of the Lord that are coming. That's that Old Testament uh, picture of the prophets who've come over and over and they've rejected them and they've killed them and finally he sends his son. They say, let's get rid of him because the inheritance will be ours. The inheritance will be ours. I want to kind of focus on that a little bit. What's, the, what's an application perhaps for us? The, the problem here that I think we can see in that, in our focus on the inheritance, these guys, they're focusing on the inheritance, which was theirs. There's a problem of rejecting, or for us, maybe not outright rejecting God but missing God. And I think the danger is much more subtle than an overt rejection of God. But missing God, because as builders, to use, this, to, to use the language in the passage Jesus quotes, as builders, we, we in the church, we those who are aligned with the ways of the Lord, we have in our own sights our own interests, our own projects. If I'm going to touch on our our political situation today, our own rights that are guaranteed to us by something. (laughs) Even those things we've been entrusted with, we've been blessed with by the master of of the vineyard here. We have those things in the forefront of our minds, so there may be that we run the risk of while focusing on the blessings of the inheritance, we miss God. So where do we go? This has to do with verse 9 and 10 in our passage. What will the owner do? Jesus says, asks. He will come and he'll destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Or as Matthew's account of the same passage or the same parable, Matthew's account says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to people producing its fruits. And I believe it's in Matthew, it might be in Luke, but I believe it's in Matthew where their response is, oh, surely not. Surely not. Well, yeah. <laughs> Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I want to connect this, if we can, to Revelation chapter 2 where we see Jesus again, the resurrected Lord, speaking to this church in Ephesus, and he says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and you found them to be false. And know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent, 
Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, those pesky pagans out there, as which I also hate, the Lord says. So this question, where's our first love? And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to kind of put, put some, you know, not add to Scripture, of course, but, but flesh out these words, your first love. Where's our first love? Where's our first loyalty? Where's our first concern? What's our automatic default in thinking? What's our first allegiance? Interesting, Matthew Bates in his book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone points out that the word faith, pistis, often translated as faith, the way that word was used in, in first century has more of a connotation to of allegiance, not merely just believing something and even professing something, but an actual an allegiance to a leader, an allegiance to a king, and repent and believe in me. Would, was a phrase common. Repent was turned from what you're doing, yes, but put, give your allegiance to me, your fidelity to me, and it is through pistis that you are saved. Which isn't a works thing, but it's oh so much more involved, I would suggest, and Bates makes a pretty good case for that in his book. Allegiance, where is your first allegiance? You've, you've fallen from somewhere in Revelation, Jesus might be saying. So you see in the episode with the coin, Jesus is doing something much more profound than what we see at first glance. What's he doing here? And if I, I have a, a visual aid, given that I'm a teacher over here, so if we can put that up. <clears throat> Some of you might have been my students in BGU, so you've heard this little bit before. So this is a denarius. Is it? Is it? right to pay taxes to Caesar? They asked him. <clears throat> well, Jesus says, well, okay, perceiving their hypocrisy. <laughs> Bring me a denarius. Well, this is a denarius. It's about, it's not really that big. It's, <laughs> it's about a little bit smaller than a nickel, probably, maybe a dime even. But that's a denarius. That's from the reign of, of, of Augustus, or I'm sorry, Tiberius, who was Caesar during Jesus' adult life. Whose image and likeness and whose inscription, Jesus asks. So when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was Caesar. In the days of Caesar Augustus, we read in Luke, a decree went out. By the time Jesus is an adult and in his, his adult ministry, Augustus' adopted son, Tiberius, adopted son, somehow that works, um, is Caesar. So here's the coin that they brought to Jesus. And I'm sure you can read that inscription. We don't get the explanation in the text, which would have been helpful perhaps with this, but he asks whose image is on there and whose inscription. Oftentimes we focus on the image part. It has Caesar's image, but you bear the image of God, so Jesus is making a profoundly true point that you are an image bearer of the Lord, and that's kind of a theological truth that, that we, we fixate on. But whose inscription? Well, what does that inscription say? You can read that, right? Basically, on the front, well, obviously, you have Tiberius Caesar's image on the front of the coin with an inscription around it that reads, Tiberius Caesar, 
Augustus, son of divine Augustus. You see, in the Roman emperor cult, they absolutely believed that Caesar was divine. Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And the other side is the back side of that coin. It's front and back. And here you have Caesar's image. And here you have the image of Caesar or the image of Rome enthroned, holding a spear. And we go into the whole notion, the culture of Rome, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And you see enthroned on the, on the, on the throne is, is Caesar, is Rome, uh, with a, holding a spear with the point down, the peace of Rome. If the spear is pointed up, that's a, a, a warring gesture, but peace is down. And, and there's an inscription on the other side. You might be able to make that one out, actually. Pontiff Maxim, high priest. Whose inscription, whose image, and whose inscription? Caesar's. Who's Caesar? Son of God? High priest. What about, though, the coin itself? Let's go beyond the image and the inscription. Think of the coin itself. We have coins. What is the coin itself a symbol of? It represents, as a coin of the Roman Empire, the entirety of the Roman system. The machine of the Roman Empire, which was absolutely a force to be reckoned with. Don't rock the boat. That's the one, number one rule in the Roman Empire, which was huge in terms of geography, in terms of culture, in terms of languages, in terms of peoples. The only thing they had in common from North Africa all the way up to the highlands in, in England was they are Roman citizens. Different languages, different cultures, different histories, different religions, that's all well and good as long as you remember Caesar, son of divine, high priest, and don't rock the boat. Yeah? What else does that coin represent? What could the, the entirety of the Roman Empire and everything that that empire could and would provide for its citizens. Power. It's our power. But you can benefit from that. Justice. It's our justice. But you can benefit from that. Security. Freedom. Protection. Provision. Economic. Financial stability. It's a coin... That, that little piece of metal has all of these things behind it, the power of Rome behind it. If you get the more coins you got, the more power you got. Remember, you see where I'm getting at here. What is it symbolizing? So, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. What is that? Why does it say when he said that, Jesus said that, and they marveled at him? In the other, one of the other gospels, I believe, or other translations says, and they were utterly amazed when he said that. Not because he was making sort of an abstract theological truism about bearing the image of God. Though that's part of it. <laughs> He's saying that government has the right to exist, but its presence and its promises doesn't cancel out and it surely ought not usurp one's allegiance to God. And don't miss out on the weight of that. He's pushing back on everything that coin stands for. In that whole Roman system, and in any other systems and kingdoms of men, and what those systems promise to provide in their terms, on their terms and in their own authority. 
in the name of Caesar, the son of God, the high priest. All of this can be yours. Don't rock the boat, though. All right. Justice, peace, freedom, protection, provision, economic, financial stability. And you see who asked him the question? The tenants of the vineyard asked him the question. On the one hand, you have those who thought that they were standing against the Roman Empire, or at least those who really didn't like the Roman Empire. Uh, They were standing with Israel, the kingdom of God, the Pharisees, the religious nationalists or political partisans. On the other hand, you have those pesky Herodians. Uh, These were the who were content to go along with Rome and Rome's system to not rock the boat and to benefit from that, <laughs> to dutifully submit to the governing authorities, as we, may, we might put it. So you see, it's starting to get a little nervous. <laughs> well, Jesus was not a political revolutionary, nor was he an ardent nationalist or a political partisan. And he's saying to them both, your allegiance, your primary concern is to be God's kingdom. And its kind of righteousness, its kind of justice, the freedom it provides, etc., etc. So last week we heard from Derek on the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, where we see that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, they're likened to thorns that choke out the word of God. Cares of this world. Justice, peace, security, freedom, protection, provision, economic, financial stability. Anyone? And let's be clear what those thorns that choke out God's word are. They're idols. These things which will only ultimately find their fulfillment as elements or promises of God's kingdom. God's shalom. They become idols. Idols of mammon, idols of power, even idols of religion. When they're divorced from their foundation in the word of God and their foundation in Christ, when they're redefined according to the flavor of the day, cultural and societal flavors of the day, and then they're offered up as the things for which we should truly aspire. Oh, how subtle in our context, because there are truths that are self-evidence given to us by God, but they're guaranteed to us by systems of men on their terms. Herbert Schlossberg, in his book, which is a little bit dated, but it's really profound, his book called Idols for Destruction, he likens or he compares these things to what Hosea in the Old Testament calls, surprise, idols for destruction. The Lord says in Hosea chapter 8, 2 through 4, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good in verse 4 of Hosea 8. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Schlossberg goes on to say, rightly, I think, that this society will have, and he's talking about this society, this society will have peace and justice 
when it repents and overthrows its idols and not a minute before. So in light of our uncertain and anxious cultural, political climate in our country now, let's check our hearts, church, to ensure that those things that might even be themselves good things that have been entrusted or at least promised to us by God, but at the same time are guaranteed to us by the systems and the kingdoms of men on their terms and in their authority. That those things haven't become our preoccupation to where we miss God himself. In the Son that he has sent, Jesus Christ. Robert Duncan Culver, in again an older book called Toward a Biblical View of civil government, he says this, the Christian is not ignorant, or at least he shouldn't be, regarding the future. He knows that the kingdom of God will come. In the meantime, whatever the hopes of utopian planners or the promises of ambitious politicians, the world will always be the world. Whatever the divine ideal regarding governments or systems, The world will always be the world. Whatever the divine ideal, with attendant Christian duties and attitudes, government will fall short of the ideal. However divinely ordered the government might be, the Christian knows things which an essentially pagan government does not know. Hence, he has other fish to fry than those of the ruling political party. I'm interjecting now here. Put that quote. Pause. Of course, the Christian ought to be concerned and involved. We're not advocating to stick our head in the sands. So, of course, we should be concerned. We should be involved insofar as our particular government's structure or societal structures allow, or in our case, even demands or depends on citizen involvement. Back to Culver. The Christian's primary interest, though, can never be merely the popular preoccupations of the moment. And they suck us in because they're all encompassing in in the world around us, right? As you all wear masks and so forth. So my message is not long today, and I invite the worship team actually to come back up. Back in Revelation 2, we see that Jesus himself is in the business of shutting down the church whose preoccupation has become something other than their first love, their first allegiance. They've rejected the cornerstone apparently without even noticing Even while they've been engaged in good works, patient endurance, they've been standing up for Jesus' namesake. Yet we see the owner of the vineyard warning that he's coming, and he's apt to remove their lampstand. Or in the words of our parable, to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. The church, church, Christ will have a pure and spotless bride. And the burning away of the chaff comes by way of burning. 
And Jesus is in the business of taking out the lights of people that would call themselves his church, but they're distracted. Let us check our hearts that we haven't missed God by focusing on the promise of the inheritance for ourselves. See, after all, the inheritance, the vineyard is actually his, the son's. It's his, it's his kingdom, it's his vineyard, and the benefits of that inheritance of his kingdom, justice, peace, security, freedom, protection, provision, they're only really ours if we're first in him. Let's get rid of him, then the inheritance will be ours, they say. I think we could be in danger oh so subtly of falling into that mistake. Spirit, would you speak to us that we would not miss you? We're to seek first Christ and his kingdom and its kind of righteousness, his kind of righteousness, justice, peace, etc. And it's only in Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, that the dividing wall of hostility is torn down. How much hostility is out there right now? How much hostility is the church tiptoeing around, not knowing how to engage in or navigate. But if you're not in Christ, that dividing wall remains. You can't see it. You can't see that there's no hostility necessary, that it's actually been broken down in Christ between us, because you're not in Christ. It's only in Him where the wall's broken down. Culver, again in his book, says this, if Christian influence on Government or society is to be successful in the promotion of durable improvements. Then the church must be effective in performing its own distinct God-given commission, making disciples. Hopefully very many of them. (laughs) Who will in turn honor Jesus Christ as Lord in every sphere of their own lives. And who will understand the meaning for the nations of all that Christ is that all that Christ in the Scriptures has taught them to observe. So may we be found faithful. I was talking with a friend of mine who I pray with regularly, saying there's, one, there's this old song in my head, I don't know how old it is, that, that through this season that's been really hard, <laughs> these words and words over, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found faithful till the end. May we be found faithful not preoccupied with the benefits of the inheritance, that the inheritance would be ours, but the inheritance would be his, and that we would be in Christ. A people who are producing the fruits of the kingdom, because it's those people who will get the inheritance, so that the Son can have his. And let's be faithful both in our lives as individuals and our lives as the church together, as we seek together to live for him and to minister in our hurting city, in our hurting country, in our hurting world. So Lord, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you open our eyes, give us ears to hear, quicken our spirits, that we would be found faithful in the end. Amen. Amen.